friends and colleagues, and welcome to episode 115 of Dermosphere, the podcast by dermatologists, for dermatologists, and for the dermatologically curious. I am one of your hosts. My name is Luke Johnson. I'm a pediatric dermatologist and a general dermatologist with the University of Utah. And joining me today, though she is sick, is... (laughs) This is Michelle Tarbox. I'm an associate professor of dermatology and dermatopathology at Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in beautiful, sunny Lubbock, Texas. Michelle sounds horrible, but before this episode is over, she will magically be cured because due to the sorcery of recording podcasts at different times, we presume she will be better by the time we record the next segment. Also, of course, there's the pimping bell. Care to say hello, pimping bell? The pimping bell joins us to highlight especially question-worthy content or testable material. So perk up your ears if the pimping bell rings. This is a very special episode, listeners. For some time now, we have benefited from having a team of dedicated medical students helping us out here on the podcast, updating the website, doing the sound editing, putting stuff on social media emailing authors to let them know that their work was discussed on the podcast, creating video content and putting it up on YouTube and ViewMedi, and we are very grateful to all of them. And many of them are fourth-year medical students and thus are graduating this year and will be and are currently applying for dermatology residency. So residency directors, please look kindly on their applications. And we also expect that they won't be able to continue in their roles as valued members of the team after they have graduated because, you know, they'll be interns, which I'm told is still a pretty busy time to be a doctor. So probably around spring of this year, we'll have to say goodbye to them and uh, we'll be looking for other people to help us out. So if you think you might be interested, March or April would be a real good time to reach out, though. Reach out whenever. And we thought we'd spend this episode just highlighting them and their accomplishments and some of their research. And we're going to start with Angie Wong. Angie, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. We are excited to have you. You are a medical student at the Mayo Medical uh, Medical School in Arizona. And you have a very impressive CV. You graduated with a bachelor's degree in biology from Duke, it looks like. And you've got some work experience working with AmeriCorps. You've got a bunch of volunteer experience. You have like 10 peer-reviewed publications, which is roughly 10 more than I had when I was graduating medical school. (laughs) looks like you've published on a number of things, some of which I'm interested in exploring in a future episode, like treatments for burning scrotum syndrome and aphthous ulcers, which are all, which are both real difficult conditions to treat sometimes. But um, what would you like to talk to us about today? Sounds like you took a research year and spent some time researching fill in the blank. Yes. Uh, so I took a research year between my third and fourth year of medical school. And uh, I did a research fellowship with Dr. Aaron Mangold at Mayo Clinic, Arizona Department of Dermatology. And one of the, the projects that I um, was very interested and excited about was a possible treatment for cutaneous LP, um, especially because, you know, not a lot of good treatment options exist at this time. And so um, I wanted to talk about a clinical trial that looked at baricitinib, which is a JAK inhibitor, and um, its efficacy and safety in treating cutaneous LP. 
So we uh, conducted a clinical trial where patients were on baricitinib 2 milligrams daily for 16 weeks, and uh, the 12 patients had biopsy-proven cutaneous LP, and the primary endpoint was Physician Global Assessment, or PGA, at week 16. And we define treatment response as PGA grades 0 to 3 with uh, greater than 50% score reduction. And we also included uh, multiple secondary endpoints, including total body lesion count, body surface area, paritis uh, NRS, pain NRS, and skin deck 16. And then we also looked at safety. Wow. Uh, Mm-hmm. A lot of stuff you looked at. Yes. Before you tell us the results, though, can we back up for a sec? So when you say LP, I presume you mean lichen planus. Yes, lichen planus. Can you give a quick refresher uh, for our listeners about what that is in case they momentarily forget? Sure. Uh, I think we all learned in medical school the the five Ps that kind of characterize LP. So purple, polygonal, pyritic, papules, and plaques, um, and we, the reason why baricitinib was chosen. That was for... me making a motion to ding the bell, Michelle. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I missed that. <laughs> and um, the reason why baricitinib, the JAK inhibitor, was chosen for this trial is because we thought that interferon gamma um, is a key cytokine implicated in its pathogenesis. And so we thought targeting it with baricitinib would would produce um, good effects in treating this disease. And we don't really understand why lichen planus shows up, though you guys correct me if I'm wrong, though we can see a particular pattern of inflammation under the microscope. Michelle, I won't make you describe it, but it's an interface dermatitis as far as I remember. And there can be drug reactions that can look very similar as well. So if you have a patient and you biopsy, you see that result, you want to make sure you check out their med list. You can get it in the mouth, certainly, as well, though it sounds like your particular study was about skin, lichen planus, not mucous membrane lichen planus. It can sometimes be difficult to treat, so nice to have some potential other options. I'm just going to assume this trial worked out pretty well for you guys. And then baricitinib, JAK inhibitor, we've discussed it before because it's approved for the treatment of alopecia areata, and the doses are two to four milligrams. I think most alopecia experts feel that the two milligram dose is pretty wimpy, so tend to start at four. So be interested to hear what the two milligram dose did for your patients. And also you mentioned PGA score. Would you just remind us what that means? Uh, It's a physician global assessment. So that means the investigator or the physician um, evaluates kind of the the response to treatment for the patient. It's like a scale of one to 10. Yes. Yes, you're nodding. Okay, it has nothing to do with golf. Exactly. I was talking about PGA once and James was in the room when I was recording. And when we were done, he was like, PGA, golf. And I was like, no, it's not golf. And NRS is numeric rating scale. So these are all sort of like scales from some number to some number about how bad things is sort of quasi objective measures of improvement. Right. Okay. Sorry to interrupt. What did you guys find? So we found that um, all patients enrolled in the trial were responsive by week 12 and then at week 16, which was the primary endpoint, um, all but two patients had PGA grade of zero or one, which is completely clear or um, almost clear. 
And then as for secondary measures, we found significant improvements for total body lesion count, body surface area, paritis, and pain. Um, skin deck 16, we didn't find a significant difference, but clinically uh, very improved in terms of emotional, um, functional subspores. And we also reassessed these patients four weeks after the treatment was discontinued and saw um, a sustained response, so 100% response as measured by PGA four weeks out off therapy. Awesome. But Skindex didn't get better, so people got better, but they didn't care? I think um, the the p-value was 0.008, so it didn't meet the criteria for significance, but we did note that the score uh, dropped from 59 to 16.9 for, for overall skin deck score. So Okay, so maybe if you had more people, we would have been able to detect a difference in at least some of them. I think so. Yeah. Michelle, it's super easy to talk over you right now, but i sorry if I did. Were you going to say something? No, I was just agreeing. All right, cool. So perhaps with a higher dose of baricitinib also, we would have seen more improvement. So... Cool to have this out there. Is this published yet or just awaiting? Um, so these results were were discussed at the AAD um, late and breaking session, um, but it's not published yet. We're currently in the middle of drafting the manuscript. And it's funny that you mentioned the dose because we also did a dose escalation trial. Um, and that I'm not sure if I can discuss on the podcast at this time. Okay, fair enough. You would have to kill us and all of our listeners. (laughs) We don't want that. It sounds like Michelle's virus is doing a decent job taking her out anyways. All right, Angie, that's a really cool article. So friends, if you've got patients with difficult to control cutaneous lichen planus, consider a JAK inhibitor like baricitinib, especially since some of us have some samples lying around. Seems like a pretty reasonable thing to at least try. Angie, really appreciate all that you do for the podcast. We, of course, wish you the best of luck in your career. Anything else you want to tell our listeners while we've got you here? No, I don't think so. Thank you both for being just so fun to work with. Um, I had an amazing time being part of the Dermosphere team and getting to meet you both at the AAD. Um, That was such a wonderful experience. So thank you so much. You're very kind to say so. All right. Well, we'll take advantage of your skills for as long as we can. (laughs) And best of luck with everything. Thank you. Salute. (laughs) All right. Next up is, among other things, a healthy Michelle. Michelle, you feeling better? So much better. My voice works again, which is really good because I'm actually about to do a concert with my twin sister in Vienna. Humble brags. You know Mm -hmm. who else has a twin sister? Morgan. Morgan. Welcome, Morgan. Thank you. So Morgan Dykeman, another integral member of Team Dermosphere, is an excellent medical student and will be an even better doctor. Um, Morgan has done a lot of work. She seems dedicated to pediatric dermatology. Among other things, she attained a fellowship position at PEDRA, the Pediatric Dermatology Research Alliance, which there's only one of them, and it's her. She had to, you know, compete with other people who wanted the job. And she has done a lot of work with dermatology and people with disabilities, which is probably a pretty underserved um, population. 
And of course, her CV is very impressive with all of these accomplishments. Among other things, she has a publication about biologics in the British Journal of Dermatology. But Morgan, what are you going to talk to us about today? So today I'm going to talk to you about a study that we did, and the title is Transition of Care in Patients with Epidermolysis Bullosa, a survey study. It's currently published in Pediatric Dermatology. Very cool. Yeah. So in this study, um, we surveyed people um, with EB through DEBRA and other centers, and we care that care for high numbers of patients with EB. Um, and we found that of everyone we surveyed, which was in total 51 people, 12% mm-hmm. of adults were still seeing um, pediatric subspecialists. And most commonly, not surprisingly, pediatric dermatologists. That's fascinating. It kind of makes sense. <laughs> well, and it, the care of EB patients can be so specialized because of the special needs that they have to keep from developing skin cancer or to keep from developing, you know, non-healing wounds. What did you find might be a, a good way to help those patients maybe transition to adult care? Do you think that the solution is to keep them in peds? So I don't think the solution is to keep them in peds because, you know, I think it's not fun to walk into a pediatric hospital at 37. Um, so I would love to transition them, I think. And what the patient suggested from the survey was more education for the adult um, specialists because the patients noted in their surveys that what really kind of felt the worst was when they would walk into an adult appointment and feel like the adult physician had no idea how to take care of them. And that wasn't just in the specialty of dermatology. A lot of the survey respondents said even, you know, a dentist or an OBGYN kind of understanding what the disease is and feeling like they have to educate their physician. Certainly a tough disease to deal with no matter what age you are. As a pediatric dermatologist myself, probably the newborn period is one of the hardest because in addition to trying to make sure little tiny baby toes, et cetera, don't get fused together, you're also explaining Mm -hmm. the disease to the patient's parents. And there's a lot of emotions going on. You don't have a final diagnosis until the genetic testing comes back. But there's no part of this that's like easy. There are some forms of EB that get a lot better as people get older. So of course, we all hope for that one. But I guess I would say if I had an adult patient with EB who first came to me, I would think about wound care, surveillance for SCCs, making sure their mucosal involvement is being kept under control so that they can sort of nourish themselves. What do you think, Morgan? Do I have a pretty good handle on some of that stuff or what else should our adult colleagues know? Yeah, I think I think that's a really good handle. I think the gap also seems to be with the podiatry team and knowing like proper foot care in terms of working environments because our patients grow up and want jobs and need accommodations in that space and really understanding how to write a good disability claim, I think is important uh, for that patient population and knowing you know how to write that the right way so that our patients get what they need is definitely needed. I don't know if I know how to write a good disabilities claim. Fortunately, it doesn't come up all that often. I think I've written 
one for hydradenitis separativa, maybe one for something else. You got any pointers there? Yeah. So for a disability claim, you kind of talk about the severity of the disease. You outline how long you've been in a relationship with that patient. You give an objective review of um, kind of how you can see it affecting their work environment. And yeah, you just, you know, basically lay out the facts so a third party can decide what the accommodations should and will be. And I think remembering that you're speaking to non-medical personnel whose baseline knowledge is completely different than your own is probably helpful. But speaking of disabilities, you've done a lot of work with other disabilities as well, or persons with disabilities. And it sounds that's kind of what fired you up about dermatology. I know. But mm-hmm. we've got a couple more minutes before uh, we have to say goodbye to you. But what should our dermatology colleagues know about persons with disabilities and their skin? Oh, so many things. I'm actually giving an hour-long talk on it tomorrow. But um, I think the first thing with the skin is making sure you focus on ability rather than disability in terms of the exam Mm -hmm. and not, not doing a full exam just because you don't know how to do it. Oftentimes our patients are super creative and they can find a way to do a proper skin exam on themselves or move in a certain way allows you to do that. Um, And then beyond that, I think it's just really advocating in your clinics for adaptive equipment, whether it's a Hoyer lift, whether it's accessible parking, accessible bathrooms, knowing um, the accessible rooms to place those patients in. Um, And There's actually a really great article also, um, oh, I think it's in pediatric dermatology as well, um, that talks about adaptations for our folks with autism and kind of one of the best points I like about that article is it talks about rooming the, like adaptations for rooming the patient. So not letting that patient hang out in the lobby forever, you know, just putting them right into their room, um, and yeah, I think that's I think that's really important because that's a you know if you see if you see thirty patients in a clinic day, at least one or two of them will likely have some type of disability. And I think that some of the training we get in medical school for how to approach a patient is counter to what you need to do for a patient who might have any sensory issues or might have autism spectrum. Because we're taught to like make eye contact, shake hands, or before the pandemic, mm-hmm. shake hands. We bump elbows or whatever it is that we do now. But um, for some of my patients that have anything on the autism spectrum, they find it best to just focus on what part of the exam that you have to do at the time and not really all of the sort of additional things that we're, we're trained to do. And from a pediatric dermatology perspective, we see these patients quite a bit too, and I think it's helpful to modulate what you do just as soon as you walk into a room. I see some residents rotate with me and, you know, they're excited to be in the pediatric world and their persona becomes a little bit more, hey, we're fun and we're dealing with kids. So they kind of burst into the room and they're like, what's up, everybody? It's the dermatology clinic, which is cool, but that can be off-putting to certain patients. So I have toned myself way down, even though that is kind of my baseline personality. And, you know, I 
open the door and I sort of walk in slowly and I say, hi, this is Jackson or whoever, and sort of move into it a little bit more slowly. And then if they're, you know, the sort of personality that appreciates this more clownish, then we can go in that direction. (laughs) Well, Morgan, thanks very, very much for everything you do with the podcast. And thanks for being with us today. Any final thoughts you have that you'd like our listeners to know before we say ta-ta for now? Hmm. I don't, I don't think so. I hope to meet our, our listeners kind of on the interview trails. So see you around. Well, Morgan, you've been absolutely tremendous. We have so enjoyed having you be a part of Team Dermosphere. You have been a leader in your group and we're so grateful for everything you've done. Next member of Team Dermosphere to join us today is Guilherme Kuseki. He goes by Guy. And hi, Guy. Welcome. Happy to have you here. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. Guy is from Brazil and has a very interesting history and in in fact renounced his Brazilian citizenship so that he could serve in the U.S. military as a medic. Wow. And it sounds like it was in that capacity that he became enamored of dermatology. And now we are lucky to have him not only in this country, but in this very school and in this very podcast. Guy, what should we talk about today? Thank you. Thank you. Well, um, I have this, this research that I'm, that I'm doing right now. And a little bit of background information is, you know, one of my great mentors, uh, Dr. Aaron Seacrest, he, he mentioned that uh, for, for a handful of patients that had acne, he would give them isotretinoin and they would not get better. Uh, and then mm-hmm. until he finally, you know, mentioned, hey, maybe if you want to uh, switch birth control methods, you know, we can, can try that. And when they removed their uh, intrauterine device, uh, then they got better, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so we started investigating there. And actually, you, you talked about that during episode 96, where a similar study that was looking at androgenic conditions uh, mm-hmm. and had like copper versus hormonal IUDs. Do you remember that? Yeah, for mm-hmm. sure. Mm-hmm. Awesome. So... And, and I was wondering, have you have you had like a similar experience in clinic as well? Oh, yeah. You know, I think that the hormone eluding IUDs are um, very useful from an OBGYN standpoint, but they do cause some dermatologic issues. In some people. If I've had this experience, I have not recognized it. So thanks, Guy. I have had a few patients where I'm like, man, it's month five and they're still not turning around. Well, I guess we probably just keep going and, you know, maybe add some omega-3 fatty acids, tell them to take it with a fatty meal and all that stuff to make sure they're absorbing it as best they can. But I should start looking to see if they're on an IUD, especially if they're women. Yeah. Yeah. So very interesting. Uh, uh, and and, you know, we requested the data. Um, we, we had about 21,000 patients with IUDs. And wow. we had about uh, 13% with copper IUDs and 87 with hormonal IUDs. And the hormonal IUDs were just the uh, levonorgestrel-based ones, you know, including uh, the Skyla, Kylina, Lyleta, and Marina. Uh and uh, when I when I say when I when I divided the group the groups that way it was based on their first insertion within the ten years that we have available, uh, and I say that because there's also a group that had both uh, copper and hormonal during that time, uh, and I'm going to quickly talk about that as well. Uh, but basically, 
we wanted to see if the incidence of isotretinoin use or, or treatment was higher in the hormonal group, right? Because there, mm-hmm. there, there are studies done showing uh, escalation, it, it, the, showing that escalation is higher in the hormonal group, but all the, only uh, to the, you know, oral antibiotic kind of like level, but not to isotretinoin. Um, so what we found was that if you just compare those two groups based on the first insertion, uh, the, the acne and, you know, the incidence of new acne diagnosis is, is higher. So odds ratio of 1.3, uh, the, the confidence interval goes between 1.07 to 1.49. Uh, so the, in the hormonal group, right. So, uh, higher odds of developing acne there after placement. Uh, but then for isotretinoin, there's no difference uh, between groups. However, if you if you change the way you split the groups and you do like people with only hormonal IUDs and then people with only non-hormonal and then the mixed group, then you have a lot of significance for many things. Uh, so we call that the mixed group, right? In the mixed group, they were almost, you know, in a lot of cases, four to five times more likely to to get isotretinoin treatment, and um, and also to develop a new diagnosis of acne. Uh, so the odds ratio was two point eight six for a new acne diagnosis, and uh, in two point seven for isotretinoin treatment. And the the confident confidence interval goes from like two all the way to five, basically. Sorry, are those those odds ratios are comparing the hormonal IUDs to the non-hormonal IUDs? Yeah, when when you add the mixed group, it would be like the copper IUDs only group, and then you're comparing the mixed and the hormonal, you know, to the copper, uh, and so that that's when you get the odds ratio that I mentioned. And I missed it. What's the mixed group? So it's like if you have uh, within those. 10 years of data, if the patient has had a hormonal and a non-hormonal IUD placed, you know. So patients who've had at least one hormonal IUD exposure, they have yes. a, it sounds like two to three times greater risk of having an acne diagnosis or an isotretinoin prescription. Correct. Yes. I think that's a good way to do the study, because if we just compare Mm -hmm. it to like women who haven't had an IUD, then maybe the reason they're not getting acne is because they're on OCPs that are helping their acne out. So this is suspicious. Should everybody just be on a copper IUD? Like are the hormonal eluding ones somehow better at preventing pregnancy? I don't know enough about this issue. Yeah, it's hard to say because it appears that the copper IUD also increases the risk of acne in some studies. Not as much as the the hormonal IDs, right? Uh, but it does to a, to a certain degree. So I think it varies. But there is that that mixed group appears to have like some kind of sensitivity, you know, to to those intrauterine devices. It's possible that since they're the mixed ones have had a combination of maybe hormonal and non-hormonal, that those patients are more hormonally sensitive. You know, there may have been a reason why they would switch from one to the other. And so that also might indicate that there's a subpopulation of patients that have greater hormonal sensitivity. And even though the hormone levels in these hormone-eluting IUDs that are soft and flexible versus the copper T, which is rigid, um, those differences may be more important for certain subgroups of patients. So I think that's very interesting. 
So yeah. can we overcome this just by piling on more isotretinoin, kind of, you know, the American way? Or <laughs> do these patients have to, like, have their IUDs pulled? Because that sounds like a pain. And then you got to do something else for pregnancy prevention, right? Which iPledge doesn't like. They want you to use the same thing start to finish. Yeah, well, that's a great question. I'm not sure. But, uh, you know, hopefully I'm going to have the chance to research, do more research in that area because I, I thought it was very interesting. Well, thanks for hanging out with us, Guy, and thanks very, very much for everything that you do for the podcast. Anything else you'd like to tell our listeners before we let you go for today? Well, uh, look kindly, you know, on my application, and then, you know, I'm, I'm very honored to be here and work, very honored to work with uh, Dr. Tarbox and also Dr. Johnson. I call him Luke and Michelle because they let me back, you know. <laughs> Very happy to you have you. You did fantastic. Thank you so much for everything you've done, Guy. You've been amazing. All right. Bye, everybody. Thank you. Next up, Michael Birdsall. Michael's another medical student here at the University of Utah, and he actually has joined us before on the podcast in episode 102, where we talked about palms and total body surface area. And of course, he really joins us with every episode behind the scenes. Michael was trained as a nurse before he went into medical school, and one of his Very many cool. interests and accomplishments in dermatology includes DEI, Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Initiatives, and we are very happy to have you as part of the podcast and happy to have you today. Welcome. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. Thank you, Michelle and Luke, for having me on, and it's been a blast the entire time working on the podcast. It's just something I've never been exposed to, so it was a really cool opportunity, and I, I've really enjoyed it. So. Thank you. Well, thanks for saying that. You are welcome. And of course, we are very happy to have you. What should we talk about today? Well, I wanted to talk about a paper that um, I was on that recently got published. Um, Congratulations. In... Thank mm -hmm. you. Um, it got published in Teaching and Learning in Medicine. Um, very cool. This, yeah, it was a paper I worked on in the first few years of medical school. Um, I wasn't the first author on the paper, but it was... It was sort of going when I came into medical school and I found out about it uh, from one of my mentors and wanted to jump on it as soon as I could. So um, that's kind of how I got introduced to it. And it's about something that I really care a lot about, as you alluded to, Luke, um, diversity, equity, inclusion and anti-racism are uh, really important things to me. And this article sort of addresses that, addresses that in, in some way. Um, so I wanted to talk about this article. The title is Skin Color Representation in Teaching Photographs. One Institution's Approach to Addressing Visual Racism in Medical Education. The authors are Ha D.H. Lay, Shreya Shreya Kantaswamy, Holly Lind, Michael Birdsall, that's me, Jenna Jensen, Stormy C. Foster Palmer, Ben J. Brintz, Candace Chow, Boyd Richards, and Sarah D. Cipriano. So to give a little bit of background of why we... Um, we're engaged in this project and doing this research. Um, in the literature, you'll find that about 20% of images in major dermatology textbooks are of darker skin color. Um, another study cited about 4.5% out of 4,146 images from popular medical textbooks represented darker skin tones. And another study uh, cited that 24% of images in dermatology sec sections of popular US MLE sources were rated as skin of color. So you can tell there's an overall lack of skin of color images, um, and these are what medical students use to learn, which um, you can see would be problematic. Um, some studies have described this lack of appropriate visual representation of black and brown skin color within teaching materials as visual racism. 
So to tackle this discrepancy at our own institution, we wanted to review and revise skin color representation of visual teaching images in our preclinical courses. So those are in the first two years at the University of Utah. Um, we surveyed medical students about skin color representation in the curriculum. And the two main courses that we did this for were the host and defense course, which students take in their first year of medical school, and then in the second year, um, skin, muscle, bone, and joint. So those are the two courses that we, um, we surveyed from. So we found for our host and defense course that 80% of the second year medical students who answered the survey disagreed or strongly disagreed that lecture slides had appropriate representation of images from different skin types. Um, and we then asked how they would like to see more skin color representation in their coursework. And around 60% of students preferred a gradient of skin types for every di diagnosis discussed. Um, and another 35% said at least one more, sorry, at least more images of different skin types. So our approach was to, with those survey results, um, collect content from the preclinical courses. So all of the lectures, slides, all those things, pre-work, everything that was used um, as teaching content, we collected. Uh, we assessed the content for skin color representation. Um, and to make the audit a little more feasible, we decided to only consider teaching photographs, um, which we considered photographs provided with the purpose of teaching the trainee about a disease, diagnostic technique, or concept. Um, we proposed and implemented changes to the cur current preclinical curriculum based on these results and provided resources for making the suggested changes. And then we resurveyed the preclinical students to gauge their perception of skin color representation after the revisions. So for auditing, um, we had two coders um, audit every image and we utilized the Fitzpatrick phototyping scale. So in the scale, any image categorized as a type four to type six would be considered an image of skin of color. Um, and the preliminary results from our audit of host and defense and skin muscle bone and joint showed that 23 to 27% of the teaching images in host and defense were classified as darker skin tones and only 16 to 19% of SMBJ or skin, muscle, bone, and joint were coded as skin of color. So again, we created this guide for faculty, um, um, suggested some ways that they could revise their content, coordinated with the library staff to compile resources for skin color photographs, and received approval from the curriculum committee to um, have preclinical curricular change. Um, and with the initial results, we saw an increase not only in the total number or in the total number of visual teaching images. Um, and then we also saw an improved brown and black skin color representation in the content. So H&D, or host and defense, increased from 29% to 42% darker skin types. And SMBJ, and muscle, bone, and joint, um, improved from 19% to 30% after the intervention. Cool. Awesome. And so, the intervention was mostly just like telling people, hey, you got too much white skin. Here yeah, are some resources for more darker skin and put those in. Yeah, that, that was basically it. We just, um, we had some, a survey that we used and some guidelines that we thought would be appropriate. So we, we said, are these things being met? Do you feel like these things are being met in your curriculum? And then based off of that, um, here are some suggestions of ways you could improve that. So um, that's kind of how we saw them make those changes. I think that's a great way like to, to help the faculty meet the mission of really educating the, the students to treat all the patients they'll encounter 
I know we addressed this in our own school as well. And one of the other issues we ran, ran into was not just the number of images or the paucity of skin of color in general representation, but also the over-representation of skin of color in venereal disease images. And, yeah. you know, that actually is a huge issue because it sort of programs um, doctors to think about STDs more frequently in patients with skin of color, which really, you know, it's something we should always think about when the circumstance is correct and it shouldn't be based upon the person's skin color. So I think that that's another piece that um, can be very complicated to address. And, you know, some of the issue is starting to be corrected that the images also just weren't that readily available to find, you know, an image of an STD in a patient of darker skin type used to be a lot more um, kind of almost difficult to avoid than uh, to find a, an image of a person with skin of color of eczema would be very difficult. And so I think that there are systemic efforts to try to address this, but I also think that individual solutions for independent schools is important as well because each school's curriculum is its own, you know, purview. And so I think that your project actually could serve as a model for many higher institutions uh, of learning to, to help improve this. Yeah, it was, that's actually an interesting point because that was one of the, the metrics that we brought up was, do you have a disproportionate number of darker skin tones representing venereal diseases or, or those things that are sort of um, inappropriately classically associated with darker skin tones? Um, mm -hmm. So that was... Um, a really interesting point that you bring up and, and something that we tried to address in, in our project as well. That's awesome. Speaking as one of the faculty who made these changes after hearing these results, um, it's pretty easy, but the first step is just recognizing it. And I think one reason that our lectures are so replete with a bunch of Caucasian skin is because they're kind of like historical. You know, there's a bunch of medical schools around and you don't need to make a specific acne lecture for each of them. So usually when I'm asked to give a lecture, I'm like, okay, well, does anybody already have an existing PowerPoint? And probably I inherited this acne PowerPoint from like, it was originally created like 20 years ago. And there's, you know, just a bunch of white skin in there because, you know, now we're enlightened. And before then it was the dark ages. And so now we need it to be literally the dark skin ages. And so it's just a matter of like opening up your PowerPoint and finding these resources. There are some specific digital textbooks that you can use. Visual DX is a pretty good one if you've got access to that. I can also just Google acne African-American skin and usually something fairly decent shows up if I don't mind using Google images. And it's, you know, takes a little bit of time just to swap out the images, but then you're good to go. Or you don't even have to swap them out. You can just add them have a pretty good representation of everything. Yeah, I, it's funny that you say that too, because I, I think about my own experience as a medical student and even just before medical school, my education in general, I think coming from Utah, which is predominantly white, um, I feel like I, I didn't notice how often images were like white skin and, and how much a lack there was of darker skin tones in teaching in general. So it was really interesting to see after being involved with this project, noticing, you know, PowerPoint presentations and those kinds of things. And when we saw a difference, when we saw the intervention take place, um, giving a gradient of skin tones for a disease presentation and how much of a difference that made. Um, and that was actually another part of the, the research was that we, we surveyed the students after and before the intervention, about 8% of students felt there was adequate representation of different skin colors. And after um, that went up to 73%. That's um, awesome. All right. Yeah, and that was 
host and defense course. So, so really impressive improvement just from that, you know, like 11 to 13% improvement in the actual percentage of, of skin tones. When you think about it, there, there's also another area that this plays a role, which is like health education, right? So all of us probably remember being shown videos that were probably 20 to 30 years old when we were shown them that had the same problem, disproportionate representation of patients with skin of color and images of STDs. So I think this is another area that we also need to address because the populace writ large is also educated with images that tend to be disproportionate when it comes to things that are you know, considered more like clandestine. Those images and, and many of the, the resources are older resources that were made before people were thinking about these these equality concerns. And I think it is something that probably needs to be addressed at even the like junior high level. Yeah. Well, Michael, thanks for your work on that project and improving our institution. And thanks for all your work on the podcast. Of course, any final thoughts you have for our listeners before we let you go? Um, hopefully I'll be seeing you at an interview near you. Um, but that's about all I have. Thank you so much for letting me work on the podcast and, uh, thanks for letting me talk about this research. That's awesome. A hundred percent. Best of luck with everything. Thanks. I'll see you. And finally, at least for today, we have Eleonora Marcacci. She goes by Ellie and she's another University of Utah medical student and a valued member of Team Dermosphere. You may have heard her before in episode 93 when she talked about derm in space. <laughs> Welcome, Ellie. Thank you so much. Ellie was a derm MA before she went to medical school, and she has done a lot of work in a lot of different realms of dermatology, including innovation. She's won some significant awards in the tens of thousands of dollars for some of the devices she's been working on. I think she mentioned one of them was a mask that was supposed to re reduce goggle fogging, you know, especially prevalent if we're going to have another pandemic. But hey, we're not going to. Everything's fine. She's also <laughs> published in numerous journals, including in the JAD, where she published on underserved populations. Very happy to have you as part of the podcast, Ellie, and happy to have you here today. What shall we talk about? So today I'm going to be talking about dermatologic health disparities in rural and underserved communities and propose one potential solution for addressing this unmet need. 46 million Americans live in rural areas, and these populations are not only underserved by dermatology, but also by healthcare in general. According to the CDC, rural Americans are at greater risk of poor health outcomes for a number of reasons, including long travel distances, higher rates of poverty, and less access to health care. Geographic areas with higher densities of dermatologists have been associated with improved patient outcomes, but only 1.5 to 10% of dermatologists practice in rural areas, and that low density of practitioners is reflected in patient outcomes. In fact, a previous study showed that in patients with a melanoma diagnosis, those with metastatic disease had increased odds of being located in rural areas compared to those with no diagnosed with non-metastatic disease and also had increased all-cause mortality. The University of Utah Department of Dermatology has been working since 2018 to 
establish monthly outreach clinics to address this unmet need, wherein dermatology faculty will fly out to the rural outreach clinics so that patients who otherwise would have to travel to the University of Utah Hospital in Salt Lake City, Utah, can instead be seen by the providers locally, saving them significant time and travel-related expenses. The goal of our study is to provide insight into the patient demographics and types of diagnoses seen in rural patients compared to their urban counterparts, and to assess the impact of these outreach clinics in improving access to care. We performed a retrospective chart review of 682 patients seen in the rural clinics and compared them to the 12,000 patients seen at the main university hospital over the same two-year time period by the same providers. Comparing patient demographics, Rural patients tended to be older, which is consistent with the higher proportion of rural patients on Medicare. Patients in rural areas also had significantly higher frequency of skin cancer diagnoses, as well as pre-malignant diagnoses, connective tissue disease, and psoriasis. Consistent with this, rural patients also required significantly more cryotherapy and or electrodesiccation and curatage procedures. For patients at either clinic, the nearest access point to a dermatologist is over 100 miles away. But by holding these outreach clinics, that distance was decreased to less than 20 miles per patient. For most of these patients, that amounts to one to one and a half days taken off of work or other obligations to make their appointment, signifying critical savings in both time and finances, including actual travel time, time off work, expenses related to travel, such as fuel, food, lodging, and childcare. In conclusion, we show that there are significant differences in patient demographics, number of skin cancer diagnoses, and types of skin disease diagnoses in rural populations compared to their urban counterparts, highlighting the specific needs that exist within rural communities for dermatologic care. We also propose a feasible solution to address this unmet need through rural outreach clinics, which significantly decreased travel burden for rural patients, translating into critical savings in both time and finances. We hope that in documenting this health inequity and describing a potential solution, this will support future efforts to increase healthcare access for underserved populations. A hundred miles, that's a lot. It is a lot. So sometimes I feel like a jerk for not going out to some of these satellite clinics and major props to my colleagues who do this stuff, because if you sort of are not part of this world and you're looking at it from outside and you think to yourself, geez, the doctor just wants everybody to come to their clinic so that they can, you know, have a short commute and just hang around. Whereas if they, you know, once a month drove three hours and saw 30 to 40 patients, they'd be saving all of these people 200 miles of travel. Come on, Dr. Johnson, what are you doing? And, you know, that's perhaps fair. But to incentivize more doctors to go out and do stuff like this, I think studies like yours are really important because probably it's not that difficult to come up with a reasonable dollar value of 100 miles each way for these patients. And plus, you know, the people they bring with them to their appointment, a lot of them, you know, will go with their spouses or their kids come with them or something like that. So you can add up all of the cost savings to society and use some proportion of that to incentivize physicians to go out there. And I I'm not saying this just because I'm trying to have a platform to convince somebody to give me money to go do rural outreach clinics. I also just don't want to be away from my family. But it seems like that that's kind of a the a next obvious step based on your research. Have, did you guys talk about something like that at all? 
Yeah, so we know that the costs associated with operating these outreach clinics are not insignificant. A typical day requires at least one attending physician and two to three medical staff that travel to the clinic, taking them away from another clinic that will need to be staffed, in addition to the costs associated with flying everyone out to the clinic for the day. The investment that goes into holding outreach clinics may at least in part be offset by the most surgeries that result from the office visits. Of note, over 90% of the Mohs referrals given in rural outreach clinics were completed at the Maine University Hospital, suggesting that this could likely be a feasible model for both patients and providers. Apart from that, caring for these individuals is an incredible opportunity for providers to expand their proficiency in caring for a diverse patient demographic and ultimately give back more to the specialty than we'll take. And dermatology is fairly portable. We do procedures and stuff, and most of the instruments are we can carry around. It's not like we have to operate in an operating room. Teledermatology, though, then nobody has to go anywhere. But I think we've been exposed to both the pros and cons of teledermatology during the pandemic, and there are some significant cons. Mm-hmm, for sure. You know, there's some things that's very hard to diagnose through a webcam, so I think that you know, for those patients that teledermatology isn't a good solution for, I think that satellite clinics can be a nice solution. Well, thanks, Ellie, for being here today and for everything you do for the podcast. Any final thoughts for our listeners before we say au revoir? Well, thank you both so much. I am incredibly grateful to have been part of Team Dermosphere. I'm excited for where this next year takes me and where I'll be a resident next year. Eleanor, you've done an amazing job. We've been so happy to have you as part of Team Dermosphere. Thank you for everything you've done. And anybody listening, she would be a tremendous resident. Well, that is all the time we have for today. So listeners, today we learned from many of our members of Team Dermosphere. We learned about baricitinib for lichen planus with Angie Wong. We learned about transitioning from pediatric to adult care for epidermolysis bullosa patients from Morgan Dykeman. We learned about isotretinoin and IUD, IUDs with Guy Kuseki. We learned about an approach to visual racism in medical school curricula from Michael Birdsall. And we learned about derm issues in rural and underserved communities from Ellie Markachi. Thanks to all of them for coming on today. And of course, for all the work they do on the podcast, they do a lot of work behind the scenes. So because of them, for example, you can find us on social media. We are on Facebook, Instagram, and I'm told it's not called Twitter anymore. Young people told me that it's not called Twitter. It's apparently called X. So so you can find us there as well, um, as well as on the website, dermospherepodcast.com, which is a good way to get in touch with us and also has links to all of the articles that we discuss, as well as our entire archive. And we'll see you guys in two weeks. Peace out. Bye.